We're going to be looking in uh, Deuteronomy again this week, chapter 16. We actually jumped ahead. Some of you are going, praise God, finally. <laughs> but I'm personally really excited about the message this morning. You know, so often we look at things in the Old Testament, especially some of the old religious things, the old ceremonial things, some of the old feast days, the celebrations. It's interesting to to me when we're looking at what Moses has been uh, Moses has been saying, <clears throat> excuse me, Moses has been saying to the people. And all of a sudden in Deuteronomy, we're approximately in the middle of the book, not quite. He kind of shifts gears for at least one chapter. And he starts talking about celebrating, rejoicing, remembering and rejoicing, remembering and celebrating all that God is, what he has done, what he has done for us. And he goes into this teaching of reminding them about feast days. And we're going to look at a few of the feast days, three primary ones. And if you're like a lot of people, you think, wow, Jewish feast days, what the heck has that got to do with us? Well, remember, first of all, that God tells us that the entire Word of God, the entire Bible, has been inspired by Him, breathed by Him, and that it's all beneficial to us. And I hope today that as we look at these three feast days, you realize how important the message is to us. Not the religious aspect of that you have to do this, that, or the other thing, but the message. Remember, the Old Testament is really a shadow, right? A shadow of what? A shadow of the coming of Christ. It points to Jesus. And it amplifies everything when we get into the New Testament. Because what was just a shadow, we're living in the reality. You know, they were, Jesus began to talk about a new covenant before he was crucified. We're living in the new covenant. We don't have to look back at all of those rules and regulations that the Jewish people were commanded to follow. But there is so much for us to be gained in some of those things when we see that it's just a shadow or a type of Christ, the real deal. So Moses has been pouring out his heart to the people on the east side of the Jordan River, reminding them that their forefathers had the chance. They were at Kadesh Barnea, and they were standing right there on the entrance into the Canaan land, the promised land, and they believed the bad report of the ten spies, and they walked around in the desert for 40 years dying. They all died. And he's reminding them and has been reminding them of some things. He's been telling them, you know what? Whatever you do, fear the Lord. We spoke about that. Have an awe and a reverence for God. Fear him because he loves you and you love him. And that was the second thing he really stressed, and he still stresses over and over throughout the book. Love the Lord your God. Love him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Love him totally. Rest that to him over and over again. And then he reminds them, whatever you do, don't forget the Lord. Don't forget the Lord. You're going into the promised land. You're going to be so blessed. But in the midst of all the blessings, don't forget him. It's easy to do. It's amazing in our own lives when things are really rough and we're going through some difficult circumstances. Man, do we turn to the Lord. But then when things are great, you know, we're rolling in the door, got a nice car, runs, we've got a beautiful home, everybody we know is healthy, man, it's easy to forget the Lord. 
He's reminding them. And then he goes on and reminds them, and whatever you do, do, don't forget to teach your kids. Don't forget to teach your kids. They're going to be living in the benefits. They're going to be living in the blessings. And they didn't live through all of that other stuff. Remind them. So in the midst of the blessings, they don't take it for granted. They don't assume this is the way it's always been and always supposed to be. Because when things get difficult, they may forget the Lord. So remember to teach it to your kids. And I didn't spend a lot of time on this, but the previous chapters he was talking about really dealing with and having compassion for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are the poor. He talks about, you know, the the dismissal of, of borrowed money, the loans are forgiven every every seven years. He talks about all these things to, to, to teach us, more than anything else, our brothers and sisters. We need to look at them and see how we can help them, bless them, meet their needs. And then we come to this chapter 16. And it's about celebrating and rejoicing. You know, one of the attributes of a Christian should be a, an attitude of rejoicing. Continually rejoicing. What? That's the key answer. The quick question, isn't it? What's the answer? Is how you answer it is so important. What are we rejoicing in? We should be distinguished as Christians by our rejoicing. So Moses is going to go in and remind them of three particular feasts. Um, sometimes some places are called the pilgrimage feasts, and you'll see why in just a few minutes. We're going to talk about Passover. Did I give you the title? Did you put it up there? She's so obedient. I told her not to put it up there till I said it. <laughs> celebrating what is ours in Christ is the title of the message. We are called to celebrate and rejoice about what is ours in Christ. And he's going to give them three feasts. The Passover, which is actually part of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's the day before the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So sometimes you'll see it called both things in your, depending on your translations. Then we're going to look at the Feast of Weeks. And we'll discover in the, in the New Testament and actually even in more modern Old Testament times that had another name. And then we're going to look at also the Feast of Tabernacles. Some of your translations may the feast, say the Feast of Booths. And actually, Tabernacles or Booths, we would probably say Tents. So these three feasts, and he told them exactly when they're supposed to celebrate them and all the things that they were supposed to do as part of each one of these. And they said they were called the pilgrimage feasts because these three feasts represented three different times of year that all the males, all the men of Israel were supposed to go, and it's written in Scripture, it says it this way, go to the place where I will tell you to worship. You're not supposed to worship in the cities I'm giving you. You're going to go to the place. And we know a little bit later in the Old Testament, King David reveals to us, where is that place? Jerusalem. So three times a year, whatever it was they're doing, they're supposed to stop, travel to Jerusalem or the place that God tells them, and worship these three feasts, celebrate these three feasts. Celebrating them, why? Well, to strengthen their faith, to remind them of what God has done, to remind them about what it is they're to be rejoicing about. So really, these feasts, if you want to look at it this way, they're to strengthen their faith and increase their joy. When our faith is strong, the joy should should go along with it. And that's what he is saying. That's what these feasts are for. 
What do you celebrate? You know, what do we celebrate? What do you celebrate? What do I celebrate? You know what we do? We celebrate those things that are important to us. We celebrate those things that have value to us. Actually, if we look at those things that way, we can discover by the way we celebrate a little bit about what we value. What do we celebrate? Well, most of us celebrate birthdays, right? We're celebrating a birthday, a gift of life. We celebrate it because it's important to us. Most of us celebrate our anniversaries, the blessing of marriage. It's important to us, so we celebrate. Most of us celebrate these things as a nation. We still celebrate Thanksgiving because we are to be thankful for what God has done in this land, in this blessings upon this land. We still are able to celebrate the 4th of July. I hope these things don't go away. We still can celebrate. Why do we celebrate the 4th of July? It's independence, a day representing freedom to us in the, in the, in the, for this nation. It's important to us. So we begin to see as we celebrate these things, we celebrate things that we value and they reveal a little bit about us. As a church, in the church life, what do we celebrate? Well, we celebrate baptisms. It's important to us where someone is making a public declaration, public demonstration of what God has done in their life, a changed life, a life that has been redeemed. We celebrate that because it's important and of great value to us. We celebrate communion, what we just did this morning. Why do we celebrate communion? Because we want to remember and rejoice in what God did, what he's doing, and that he's coming back. We want to celebrate those things. It's important to us. It's of great value to us as Christians, or at least it should be. These are some of the things that we celebrate as a church. We celebrate Christmas. You know, it's kind of turned into a lot of commercialism, but we, we celebrate it because it's the incarnation of God. We don't need to argue about if it's the right day or not. What we're celebrating is God came in the flesh. He left heaven and came in the flesh and dwelt among man. It's important to us. Without the incarnation, there would be no salvation. We celebrate Easter because it's important to us. We value it. We celebrate the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. We value it. It's important to us. We celebrate all these things, and it begins to reveal a lot about us. In terms of these feasts... What is worth celebrating for you and I as Christians when we're going to look at these feasts? Is there something in there that should give us great reason to value what's being represented? And I'm not saying we have to celebrate those days. Don't get me wrong. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm saying is there is meaning in those feasts that we as Christians should rejoice and celebrate about. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at those three feasts. The first is Passover or Pesach. It's a feast that was declared by God. In Deuteronomy 16, verse 1, it says right away, Observe the month of Abib and celebrate the Passover of the Lord your God because in the month of Abib, he brought you out of Egypt by night. The month of Abib becomes the first month of their calendar year and actually it also becomes Nisan if you've heard that more common than Abib, the son. And he's telling them that we are going to celebrate this. 
It's on the 14th day of that first month. We will celebrate the Passover, and on the 15th day of that month, the Feast of Unleavened Bread begins. Don't let the two things confuse you. It's basically at the same time. And it says, you've been slaves. You know, think about Israel's history. Why is he establishing this feast? Feast. They had been slaves in Egypt for over 400 years. They had been under the rule in the most recent years of a tyrant named Pharaoh. He abused God's people Israel, and he totally disdained God. Right up to the point of that 10th plague. The 10th plague, God's judgment was going to be meted out on Pharaoh and Egypt for the way that they disdained God, the way that he treated God's people. And it was the death of the firstborn child. Not only the child, the death of all the firstborn in all of Egypt. And God says, you're going to see my judgment, the horror of his judgment. But you're also going to see the mercy of God. Thank goodness for the mercy of God. He told Egypt, he told, he told Egypt, this is what's going to happen if you don't let my people go. Pharaoh said, forget it. We're going to make it even worse for him. And God says, okay, he talks to his people. He shows his mercy to his people. He says, what I want you to do is sacrifice a lamb. And when you sacrifice a lamb, I want you to take the blood of that lamb and I want you to put it around the doorpost and the sill of, the, of your door entering into your house. And when the judgment of God comes, when the wrath of God comes, by his mercy, I will see the blood and I will pass by. And this is what he's telling them that they need to remember and celebrate that awful day. And it says in Exodus 12, verse 13, the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. You know me by now that sometimes I like to imagine what would happen. I mean, this seems kind of weird to me, God. I mean, we've never done this before. You want us to take a lamb, really? Pure, spotless lamb, and you want us to kill it, and you want us to paint the door sill with his blood? I mean, let's kind of call our neighbor up quickly and see if they're going to really do it. What do you think? Does this sound like a good idea to you? I mean, it's amazing. Even in the midst of what was going on, the faith of the people that was demonstrated. And by doing what they were told to do, and by believing what God said was required, Believing what was required for their salvation. There was only one way they were going to be saved. One way and one way only. They had to kill that lamb and put the blood up around the door sill. If not, the firstborn would have died in every home in Israel. There's only one way of salvation. There's only one way. It's the blood of the lamb of God. And for us, that was Jesus. There must be a better way. What do you think? This seems really ridiculous. These stupid Christians, these silly Christians, these brainwashed Christians, they're, they're hinging their whole future, even in their current life, on something as silly as a man getting nailed to a cross. Only one way. Only one way. And he's telling Israel, you're going to do this, and you're going to celebrate this. And he also told them, as part of this, you're going to also celebrate for the next seven days the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You're only going to eat unleavened bread. How many of you know unleavened bread that does not taste good? We'll share some with you if we can ever go back to normal communion again. It doesn't taste good. 
think what we ate today tastes bad. Wait till it's unleavened. Why? Because it was called the bread of affliction. That unleavened bread was the bread of affliction. It was to remind them of the affliction they had been had been imposed on him by this tyrant, Pharaoh. So where does the New Testament go to go with this? What does it all mean for us? Well, first of all, as I read this morning in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus told him, I desire. And that word desire is like opening your heart. He says, not only desire, I earnestly desire to have this meal with you because I want to teach something to you, even if you miss it. What I want to do is I, I've desired this. Jesus was arrested on the Passover. Passover. John the Baptist says in John chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist is out in the wilderness proclaiming that there was one coming. Repent. The Messiah is coming. And now he's sitting there one evening with a couple, three of his disciples sitting around a campfire or something, and here comes Jesus. And what does he say? Verse 15, I'm going to read 15, 19, and 20. And John the Baptist said to them, Oh, uh, that's me. I'm in the wrong spot. John sees him coming and he says, look. What did he say? Look and see what? The Lamb of God. The Lamb of God. The sacrificial Lamb, the Passover Lamb of God is coming. It's coming now. And it's the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. You know, an unbeliever lives under the horrible hand of a tyrant. Not called Pharaoh, it's called sin. Jesus, the Lamb of God, it was John the Baptist says, there he comes. Behold, look at him, don't miss it. This is the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. And Jesus actually spoke these words in Luke chapter 22, now verses 15. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup. And this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. I believe in his own way, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, to the apostles. And he's saying, You know what? You're used to doing this Passover meal, right? But what I'm going to tell you in the next few moments, the Exodus, the greatest event in the history of Israel, pales in comparison to what's coming. What's coming is my blood, my body is going to be broken and shed for you, and there will be a new covenant of new grace for the forgiveness of sins. They missed it. We can't. His body, his blood, broken and shed for us for the forgiveness of sins. It points, I believe, directly to Jesus giving himself up and he's telling him it's coming. And as much as I'm going to dread it in a few hours in the Garden of Gethsemane, I am so glad to be here with you. I'll give you this heads up of what's going to happen. We don't roast a lamb anymore, do we? 
We don't have to roast a lamb. Why? Because the sacrifice was made one time for all time. One time. One time only. We're no longer slaves to sin. If we have accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, the power of sin does not have a hold over us anymore. We have a new life with God. He says to us, you're mine and I'm yours because of what Jesus did. And remember this, it's not a process here. It's done. At the cross, it's done. You can't earn it. You couldn't before. You can't now. It's done. The sacrifice was made. Yes, the sanctification process is a process. But this, our salvation, our redemption, by the blood of Jesus, it's finished. It's taken care of. And he speaks to this to them. He spoke to them about the exodus. And really, he's speaking to us about what? The cross. It's finished. It's done. You're no longer a slave. I love you. No matter what happens, you're not a slave. I love you. No matter what you go through, whatever you're experiencing, all the battle, different battles that you're going to go through in your life, you're not a slave. You've been redeemed. I love you. Sin will always be our enemy in this life, but it can't control us anymore. We need to realize that. We need to understand that. One, we need to understand it because we shouldn't expect the unbeliever to be able to resist the temptations of sin like we should. Sin is still their master, but he's not ours. He is not our master anymore. Now, that's we're celebrating. One of the things we should be rejoicing about that we see a clear picture of in the Feast of Passover. The second feast that he mentioned is the Feast of Weeks. Shavuot, Shavuot. We recognize it now as Pentecost. Actually, it became, they started calling it Pentecost even before the day of Pentecost. The Feast of Weeks. In Deuteronomy 16, verse 9, it says, Count off seven weeks from the time you begin to put the sickle to the standing grain. Then celebrate the Feast of Weeks to the Lord your God by giving a freewill offering in proportion to the blessing. Isn't that interesting? Give an offering in proportion to your blessing. Almost sounds like tithing or something. And he says, do this, count it from the day one, Passover. The first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now count out seven weeks. Seven times seven is 49 days. And on the next day, the 50th day, Pentecost, Penta, there will be this celebration called the Feast of Weeks. And in Exodus 23, verse 16, it actually says, celebrate the feast of the harvest. It's connected to the harvest. It says, with the first fruits of the crops that you sow in the field. Jewish history says that on that day following Passover, the second day of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, they would go out and get, which actually would have been a very premature shoot of grain, and they would bring that as a sacrifice, as a first fruit of what was to come. And then we see, a number of weeks later, the third feast that he's going to talk to them about. So when we look at this feast of weeks, what does the New Testament do with that? How does that apply to us, you and me? Well, let's look first in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. 
But Christ has been raised. He has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep. The first fruit was a sample of what was coming. Jesus as our first fruit when it comes to the resurrection. First fruit. The first fruit. The first of many that will be coming. Who are the many? They're all of us who believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Here we have the certain hope of our resurrection. So anybody who says, well, once you die and they put you in the ground, that's it. Wrong. That's not it. Sadly, it's not it for either the believer or the unbeliever. But for the believer... We have the evidence of the Feast of Weeks, the first fruit, that Jesus was raised to the dead, and we have a certain hope, not a wishful thing, we have a certain hope that we're going to be raised just like he was. Just like he was. It should be worth celebrating and rejoicing. But even there, it doesn't stop there. We see in Romans 8.23, in reference to the Holy Spirit, it says, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit. The day of Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks, the Holy Spirit is given as a first fruit. We count off those seven weeks and the next day, and that was Pentecost. They were all gathered together. And the Holy Spirit came. And the Holy Spirit lives and dwells in every single one of us as a believer. And it gives us a taste What's to come? I mean, if we really understand what we've been given already, it's a pretty good taste. But it's just a taste of God's love. I mean, that sounds weird. It's not like he's holding back the rest of the portion. It's just that us, with our natural mind, our body, we we really truly can't even understand the complete fullness of that unconditional love. It's an amazing love. Taste. And it says the Holy Spirit has already given us a taste. More to come. First fruit of the Holy Spirit. The glory of Jesus. We have an idea because of the Holy Spirit giving us a small picture of the glory of Jesus. But can you imagine when we get to heaven and we see the fullness of his glory? No need for sun, moons, or stars. The glory of God and the glory of Jesus will light up the whole place get a glimpse of his glory. We get a taste of a beginning of a new life, a new life in Christ. What we were, the old man's passed away. And we're getting that taste. And hopefully as we, as long as the Lord tarries, we're getting a little bit more of a taste all along till we go to him and see him come back. But it's still just a taste of what it's going to be like to live eternally in a new body, in the fullness of his glory. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, two critical words, having believed, otherwise it doesn't apply to you. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal the promise of what? The Holy Spirit, a first fruit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. Guaranteeing it. 
the redemption of all of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. That's worth celebrating. It should be worth rejoicing. Comparison to what these first two feasts represent, what should the cares of the world do to us? Very little. The promises we have are so much greater. And then the third feast that he mentions in this pilgrimage, of these pilgrimage feasts, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. Help us understand, we could call it the Feast of Tents. And this feast, well, let's read what Leviticus says about this feast. He says, live in booths for seven days, or live in tents for seven days. All native-born Israelites are to live in these booths. So your descendants will know that I had the Israelites live in booths when I brought them out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. He is saying the reason we're going to celebrate this is to remind the people that for 40 years you lived in a tent in the desert. I promised you when you go into the promised land, you're going to get homes and live in cities that you didn't have to build. You remember from last week. But he's also saying, this is a reminder to you that this temple, this place, is not your permanent home. You're just travelers, wanderers, passing through. You're going to be living in those permanent houses in the promised land. But remember, you lived in tents, and that was not your permanent home. In 2 Corinthians 5, what does the New Testament say? What does the New Testament do with this? Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, what's the earthly tent? It's this, our physical body living in here on earth. When it's destroyed or when we died, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be closed with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan in our burden because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly body. He's saying, this, this tent, I don't know about some of you, but this one hurts. This one's getting old. It's getting wore out. But there's going to be a new one, an eternal one. I'm going to get a glorified body like Jesus has. Wow. Imagine that. I'm going to have a body like Jesus. He goes on and says, So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life, this mortal body. Now it is God who makes us for this very purpose and has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. We look at the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles in the Old Testament. It's just a shadow of what Jesus is saying. This is coming. You lived in tents. Now you're in the promised land, and it's a nice house compared to a tent. But this tent, this body, we might be pretty enamored with our body or ashamed of our body. But whatever we think of this one, this is nothing compared to the one we're going to get because this is not our permanent home. Earth is not our permanent home. We have a place guaranteed us as part of our inheritance with Christ. Most of you are familiar with, or maybe you've heard of anyway, John Bunyan. The most famous thing that he wrote was the Pilgrim's Progress. John Bunyan died when he was like 59 years old. 
And he spent about 12 years of his life in prison for preaching the gospel. That time, even in England, you couldn't preach the gospel. Part of the story goes that as he was being prepared to being sentenced, the judge said to him, you know what, I'll let you go. It wasn't illegal assembly. You were doing what the Church of England's not supposed to, you're not allowed to do. But if you just quit preaching the gospel, I'll let you go. And according to history, Bunyan's answer was, if you let me go today, I'll be preaching the gospel tomorrow. He wrote many other books, and I want to share a quote with you from one of his other books. It's called The Desires of the Righteous Granted. And he asked two questions in here that fit really well with this feast of booths. It says this, and I I added a few words to define them better for us. He said, sometimes I look upon myself and I say, where am I now? And do quickly return an answer to myself again. Why, I am in an evil world. I'm a great way from heaven. I am in a sinful body among devils and wicked men, sometimes benighted, overtaken by darkness, sometimes beguiled, sometimes fearing, sometimes hoping, sometimes breathing, sometimes dying, and the like. Where am I now? Then he says, but then I turn the tables and say, but where shall I be shortly? Where shall I see myself soon? After a few times more have passed over me, and when I can but answer this question this way, thus, I shall see myself with Jesus Christ. This yields glory, even glory to one's spirit now. Two critical questions. Where am I now, but where am I going to be shortly? When we have the answer correct, and really the correct answer kind of gives us a, we are kind of given a very clear picture of it in this Feast of the Tabernacles. This earth is not our home. This body is not our home. It's not a permanent temple. It reminds us that the world's not our home. We live like the world is our home way too often. We're still supposed to do the best we can in everything we do as unto the Lord. We're to live our lives for his glory. So I'm not saying it it doesn't have an importance. But this is not our home. Go back to last week's sermon on alignment. You know, our passion, our all-consuming passion needs to be Jesus Christ. This is not our home. Points to the coming of Jesus and the inheritance that's ours in him. These days, scriptures we read in Corinthians, and I read at so many funerals when we're putting our bodies into the ground, this perishable will put on the unperishable. This mortal will put on immortality. That's the promise. That's the picture we see even in the Feast of Tabernacles. These three feasts, if we look at them, they point us to Jesus who he is and what he's done. It's something we should celebrate. The feast of Passover points to his death and our freedom from the slavery to sin and all that we have in Christ. The feast of weeks, Pentecost. Jesus is the first fruits. should confirm to our spirit that we one day will be resurrected just like he was. And we have the Holy Spirit that came on Pentecost. 
down payment of that inheritance. And again, the Feast of Tabernacles, just to keep us on track and remembering this earth is not our home. We're just passing through. And in terms of eternity, it isn't a very big dot on that line. Not our home. We're celebrating. Not just three times a year like the Jewish people were told to do, but it's something we should be celebrating and rejoicing every single day. The worship team comes forward. Let's pray. Father, we are so blessed to be living outside of the shadow. We are living in what the Jewish people, especially the Jewish people of Jesus' day, missed completely. This new covenant, this new covenant in the body and blood of Jesus. Father, that you paid a price we could never pay. We are no longer slaves to a tyrant of sin. We have been free, set free to become the children of God, your children. God, and then we see that as the first fruits of the resurrection and the Holy Spirit giving us a taste of what you have in store for us, that you've promised every one of us, should give us encouragement every single day of our life, no matter what the circumstances we're walking through. And that the Feast of Tabernacles would continually remind us that this is not our home. This earth is not our home. This body is not our home. That you've prepared a place for us. You're going to give us and present us with a glorified body one day. We will spend eternity in your presence. God, I pray that you would bring these things to our remembrance continually by your spirit, that we would truly rejoice in all things. Give thanks. Ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd stand with us, if you're able, and let's close with this worship song.